Good morning again. Would you uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles under the chair in front of you. And uh, you can find Acts 19 on page 901. I'll be reading there in a minute. This morning we are resuming our sermon series on the book of Acts, this account of the first century church, its birth, its early years of growth. Um, We actually started this last February, took a break over the summer a couple of other times for special seasons like our Grace Stories and Advent, and we will finish it this spring with uh, only another break for uh, the Sundays around Easter. In the last passage we looked at, Acts 18, Paul was ending his second missionary journey on which he had traveled all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and had brought the gospel for the first time into what we would call Europe today when he went into Macedonia, uh, mostly modern-day Greece. And in the middle of Acts 18, Paul returned to his base of operations in Syria, in the city of Antioch, where he stayed for a few weeks, but then got antsy, as an apostle might, and headed back out to revisit some of the churches that he had planted in Asia Minor, starting his third and last missionary journey. We'll pick up in Acts chapter 19, reading the first 20 verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, we again thank you for this account of the birth of your church. We thank you for examples of gospel ministry. We thank you for a picture of what it looks like for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit to change lives. Would you do that here at Grace Redeemer? In and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we're going to separate this passage into two main chunks. And in the first one, we see Paul doing his pioneering thing, bringing the gospel to a new place, and the result is what we'll call ordinary gospel growth. Uh, first, look at this map. I've shown this, a version of this a couple of times. This is the third missionary journey of Paul. And um, I want to point out some connections to books of the Bible that you may have heard of to, to help us realize that they're not written, these letters, in a vacuum. They are personal letters by the Apostle Paul written in historical circumstances to particular people who are going through things that he's addressing. And so uh, you, you might not be able to see all the, the names up there, but the arrow's tip points to Ephesus on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And uh, top right, the green area is called Galatia. And so when Paul writes to the Galatians, it's to the churches in that region. It's not just a town. From Ephesus, he writes to Corinth, which is across the Aegean Sea in the uh, blue-green area near Athens. And later on in his life, at the very end of Acts, we'll find Paul in a Roman prison from which he will write to these believers in Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians. He'll write to the believers in Philippi up in the top orange um, area of Macedonia. And he'll write a letter to the church at Colossae, the Colossian letter, which is just to the east of the tip of the arrow, um, still in Asia Minor. Just a little glimpse uh, that helps us realize when we open our Bibles, these were people in historical context relating to one another and not just collections of beliefs and doctrinal statements. Well, well, in our passage, the first thing we see is Paul coming across some disciples, verse 1. And it turns out they don't know who the Holy Spirit is. They have been baptized in John's name, John the Baptist, and they don't know who Jesus is. The reality, based on that information, is they are not Christians. They're on the way. They're seekers. They're, they're curious. They're spiritually open. But Paul needs to tell them that the one to whom John the Baptist pointed is Jesus. The whole point of John's ministry was to pointing ahead to the, the, the one who was coming, whose sandals, he says, he, he was not even fit to untie. And um, when, when we look at this really unique collection of folks, these quote-unquote disciples, we need to remember that uh, we're still in a very unique chapter in redemptive history. The Old Testament has, in a sense, just wrapped up with John the Baptist as the, the last prophet of that age. And the New Testament age is beginning to unfold, and there are some here who are sort of stuck in spiritual no-man's land. They're on the way, but they haven't quite gotten the answer to what they're looking for. Well, Paul introduces them to Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They're baptized in his name, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power when the Apostle Paul lays his hands on them. 
some people see this as a model of the Christian experience and expect this to be replicated in everyone's uh, experience. And so you believe in Jesus, you're baptized, and then you need to pray for this so-called second blessing of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence is that you would begin to speak in tongues. But as we've seen over and over in the book of Acts, not everything that is reported in this infancy stage of the church is normative for the church of all ages. In other words, not everything is established as a pattern to be emulated, to be replicated by Christians across the ages. So much of what we read is unique to this special turning of the page from the Old to the New Testament. In the very first chapter, we saw an example. Um, Judas was one of the 12 apostles. He uh, betrayed Jesus and then hanged himself in guilt. And the apostles in, in Acts chapter 1 decide they should replace Judas so that the number of apostles is returned to 12. And they cast lots, ending in, um, we, we say Matthias. Yeah, the, the Greeks might say Matthias, we say Matthias. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's like uh, flipping a coin to see who won the Iowa caucus. I mean, who, who does that sort of thing, you know? <laughs> um, but we don't replicate that decision-making um, process. We, we don't say that's normative for the church and that's how we run our congregational meetings. It's unique. We saw uh, this spirit sign being uh, manifested in Acts chapter 8. Why? Because the apostles needed to show up and personally confirm, authenticate that even the Samaritans, the despised um, people for their religious and cultural mixture, even the Samaritans could trust in Jesus and receive salvation. And the sign is given for the first time. Belief and spirit um, uh, gifting are, are uh, distinct. We see it again in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes to Cornelius' house to authenticate at the hands of an apostle that even full Gentiles like Roman centurions and their families can believe in Jesus and accept salvation. And this spirit sign shows up one last time in the New Testament and never again to confirm that these disciples, what do we call them, truly did come to faith in Jesus Christ even though they had been in this spiritual no-man's land, uh, baptized in the name of John the Baptist, but not quite understanding the one to whom John pointed in his ministry. I think we have our own version of this um, almost but not quite spiritual status in today's church. Yes, at GRC, but also in the contemporary Christian church um, at large. Some of you would say you believe in God that you um, understand who Jesus is as the Son of God. You, you, you might know uh, how he lived his life and how he died, and you're eager to learn more, but you're not quite there because either you don't see the fullness of or you don't quite agree with these foundational twin truths that must go together. One, that you, like all humanity, suffer from a spiritually terminal condition because of your sin. And secondly, that God has uniquely provided the only way of escape from death, which is the consequence of sin, offering salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Heading in the right direction is great. 
And we are, are always quick to say, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we're glad you're with us. If you have hard questions, we, we, we're glad that you, you have an opportunity to ask them. And we welcome that kind of spiritual conversation. We don't expect everyone who shows up on Sunday mornings is at the same level of or the same stage of a spiritual journey. Um, but here's a common danger. Complacency spiritually that sets in because like many people, if you hang around long enough and you feel like you're part of this community, this uh, the, the spiritual family of God, complacency very often sets in when you begin to think, I'm okay with God. I'm spiritually healthy because I go to church regularly on Sunday mornings, and I'm a pretty good person, especially when I compare myself to what those people are doing. But here's the thing. That's not biblical Christianity. And if that description begins to describe where you are on your spiritual journey... According to the Bible, you're not a Christian. And that's actually a loving thing for us to be able to talk about quite openly. You can change that wherever you are, no man's land or settled in your way. You can change that by placing your full trust in the Son of God, Jesus, who went to his death in your place. Jesus' sacrifice alone provides salvation. Gospel math is not Jesus plus my best efforts at saving myself, my best efforts at being good, at pleasing God, at doing the right thing. Jesus plus your best efforts do not equal salvation. Gospel math says that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And you and I are the nothing. Not because we don't matter, not because we don't, we don't have inherent worth, but because we can offer nothing to God to advance our cause in um, being rescued from this terminal condition called sin, which leads to death. One more uh, little note on, on the side before we move on to the second section. It's interesting that when Paul is assessing where these disciples are spiritually, the second thing he asks is, well, then what kind of baptism did you receive? And his question assumes that any follower of Jesus Christ has received the sign of the deeper spiritual reality. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not baptized, something essential is missing. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I, I say that to, uh, to encourage you, to urge you to come talk to me. Come talk to Josh, one of our elders, so that we can uh, help you along on that journey by... Um, agreeing with you that, yes, you have embraced biblical Christianity, and now the most natural thing in the world is to place the sign of the covenant that God has given his people, the sacrament of baptism, upon you. Uh, secondly, if uh, Paul the pioneer has, uh, continues to do his gospel ministry and we see this ordinary gospel growth, these disciples um, finishing the work by coming to faith in Jesus, the irony is... In the second half of the, the passage, we see charlatans, hucksters, false teachers, unwittingly triggering an extraordinary regional revival. First, um, come back with me to 20,000 feet. Big picture on Acts chapter 19. This chapter is actually the beginning of the end of Paul's public ministry. And I wonder if he has some sense of this. 
Maybe the Lord gave him a, a, you know, a vision. Maybe he just feels it in his heart. Because his pattern of ministry from city to city has been changing. First missionary journey into the second, he would go from city to city doing this pioneering work and stay a day or two and uh, identify some mature new believers that demonstrated some gifts, raise them up to be leaders and move on. And then he'd circle back. But in Acts chapter 17, uh, we find him staying three weeks in Thessalonica. And then in Acts 18, we find him spending 18 months in the city of Corinth. And by the time he gets to Ephesus, he spends well over two years investing in this highly strategic city. Some of that makes sense. Because Ephesus is at the crossroads of ocean and land routes, making it a... um, one of the most vibrant commercial centers of uh, Asia Minor. Ephesus is also a a politically significant city. The proconsul, uh, Roman governor, if you will, of the region had his residence and ruled from the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was also a religious center uh, of the Greek um, um, religion. In fact, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was almost four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. That gives you a sense of significance in that time. So in Ephesus and from Ephesus as a base of gospel operations, Paul could impact the major cultures and worldviews of much of the Roman Empire. It was a strategic decision on his part, not only to spend a lot more than a few days or a few weeks, but over two years of his life such that verse 10 tells us, Luke the author, that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All. Everyone had an opportunity. Very next verse, Luke tells us, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, as if run-of-the-mill miracles aren't extraordinary enough. Uh, Luke makes it a goal, uh, makes it a point to, to point this extraordinary nature out. And, and here's the thing. Real spiritual power is like any other power. People immediately take notice, and some people want in on the action. So uh, folks who don't have a, a, a real relationship with Jesus begin to invoke his name and Paul's name to cast out evil spirits. Well, that turns out to be a bad move because the evil spirits know they can't pick a fight with Jesus. They don't have a chance. They know they can't pick a fight with the Apostle Paul, this chosen instrument of God, because he's been given especially um, powerful access to, um, to spirit power. But these hucksters are easy prey, and they end up getting a beatdown by the guy possessed by the evil spirit. The name of Jesus is exalted. And um, this judgment on these religious hucksters triggers something even more extraordinary than healings and other miracles and signs. Revival breaks out in Ephesus. The name of Jesus is Uh, held in high honor, verse 17. Why? Because Jesus, everyone now knows, is not a name that can be wielded for personal profit, for religious convenience. Jesus is the name of the true king who has all power 
especially significant in a major cosmopolitan city of that time where cultural and religious and political power were exercised. Jesus is it. He's the real deal. I want to point out an important detail that we could easily skip over. The passage doesn't tell us that revival is stimulated by an all-night prayer vigil by Christians from all across the region. Even though, if you read the history of revivals throughout the, the centuries in the Christian church, of all shapes and sizes, concerted, fervent, pleading on our knees by Christians always precedes um, an outpouring of God's Spirit in revival. But the passage doesn't tell us that. We can assume it. The Christians, the churches in Acts are always praying. Um, it's there, but the passage doesn't tell us that. Nor does the passage tell us that um, revival is set in motion by an amazing sermon that Paul preached. Um, I've heard that some preachers have fantasized about revival breaking out when they preach. You know, um, you can pray for such men like that who uh, have overinflated senses of themselves. But revival here, the passage tells us, is triggered by divine judgment upon religious people. God looks at what's happening in the religious circles and brings judgment, ironically, through a crazed man possessed by an evil spirit who puts a beat down on these false teachers. You don't need me to say, tell you, inform you that the world is full of problems. There are all kinds of messed up people driven by all kinds of messed up priorities and ways of thinking. But any hope of seeing real change in our world has to start right here. Revival always breaks out inside the church. And only then does it overflow and begin to spread and salt and light uh, people around. Revival always involves God dealing with his people, the religious ones, the followers of Jesus. And so um, we need to, in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what we need. I asked a variation on this question last week in the Grace Story devotional. Could you see how merciful it would be for God to allow you to get caught in your secret sin? To receive fatherly discipline for your impure worship and your half-hearted giving and your self-oriented living? Could you see how merciful it would be for the Heavenly Father to strip away every false source of joy and significance and pleasure and leave you with what is most valuable? What Paul says in Philippians, the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It would be merciful. Severe, perhaps, but merciful. The revival here starts with godly fear, verse 17. That's not a phrase we like to hear. 
because some people would say, you know, if, if, if God is like that, he expects me to be quaking in my boots, fearful of harsh consequences if I don't do the right thing and say the right words. I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. But that's not what godly fear gets at. In a sense, I don't think we have the capacity to truly understand what godly fear is all about. Godly fear, use your, use your imagination a bit. And maybe that would approximate for, for us uh, some of what that looks like. If you encounter someone or something that is so pure, so beautiful, so otherworldly, so powerful and wise beyond your comprehension, who exhibits pure holiness. We can't even imagine that. We can begin to, especially because God has revealed his character to us. But we need to spend time thinking about what reaction would be stimulated in me. One reaction is realizing in the face of such holiness that I am a sinful, polluted person at the very core of my being, and I I don't deserve to be in his presence. Another reaction would be, I think, to fall flat on your face in abject humility and worship, godly fear. It, it, It puts us in our place properly. It recognizes who God is as the creator and the almighty one and as the father of all compassion and love, and it puts us in our place as very different, sinful, finite creatures. When you know the fullness of the gospel, when you trust in the the reality that the perfect Son of God was punished in your place, then you're able to rest in God as loving Father rather than harsh judge. And godly fear, perhaps, is something to be desired. Here's what godly fear leads to. Leads these folks to trust in Jesus, place their faith in Him as Savior. And then to openly confess what they had done, verse 18. And then to turn away from idols, anything and everything that steals worship away from God himself, who alone deserves all of our attention and adoration. In this cosmopolitan city, there would have been all kinds of competing worldviews, ways of explaining reality, all kinds of religious and political um, uh, ways of thinking, arguments, uh, cultures each claiming superiority. And then this new movement, this way of life, verse 9 puts it, called Christianity, overnight upends everything. Not just in the realm of thoughts and ideas, not, not just with plans geniusly drawn on the whiteboard, you know, but in the reality of actual lives and actual priorities and, let's be frank, where it usually shows up very accurately in people's wallets and bank accounts. Verse 19 talks about um, the value of all these scrolls being 50,000 drachmas. A drachma, if you look in your Bible footnote, is uh, approximately a day's wages. I did a quick math um, calculation. I don't know if I was correct, but using the average Bergen County um, income, of, uh, you know, even six years ago, the census, the value of these things that were thrown out or abandoned on the spot would be about six to eight million dollars. 
That kind of change is radical because the Holy Spirit empowered these new Christians to see truth, that that stuff, whatever it may have been, was incompatible with pure worship and service to the true king. This is real power because it changes lives. We're hearing a lot about change these days, aren't we? On the TV and the radio and and the internet, politicians from both parties touting their plans and their philosophies as um, a new direction for the country, a fresh start, radical change some of them are promising. And look, we do need to take responsibility as citizens and thoughtfully and prayerfully cast our votes. But more importantly than voting, we need to realize or remind ourselves again that no laws of humanity can change the hearts of humanity. As you argue, perhaps vociferously, for your favorite candidate, don't be deluded into thinking that he or she is the hope of the United States of America or the international community for that matter. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, powerful enough to conquer sin on the cross and conquer death by walking out of the grave three days later, only he can transform lives from the inside out. And this is the way Luke summarizes revival in Ephesus in verse 20. He says, In this way, extraordinary as it was, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I think that's another way of saying the gospel upended the entire culture of that whole region by radically changing people's lives. Christianity isn't merely about understanding who Jesus is and what he's done right up here. The health and increase in vitality of the church, real church growth, if you will, is measured in the power of God to change lives, to raise the spiritually dead and orient us, body, soul, mind, spirit, our time, attention, our finances, our gifts, our relationships, all for the cause of the king. Um, as we close, listen to Paul's prayer for this particular group of churches years later when he's in prison, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 3, this is his prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know what I'd call that kind of prayer? Revival prayer. But he had seen revival years previously. And so maybe this is a re-revival prayer. Maybe the churches in Ephesus had lost its first love. Maybe the fire had died down and the embers were in danger of being snuffed out a generation later. I wonder if that describes any of us spiritually. The fire has gone out. Our first love has been substituted for with lesser love that we think will satisfy we think will bring us joy, but we're chasing after a mirage. I wonder if any of you would say, 
yeah, I'm lukewarm in my faith. I'm no longer passionate for Jesus, passionate for the glory of his name. Or, or, or maybe some of you would say the fire's never actually been lit. I'm here, I'm close to Christianity, I'm interested and open like the disciples of John. Wherever you are, you need Holy Spirit power to embrace godly fear is a good thing. To see Jesus more clearly as the only Savior of sinners. To have the courage to confess openly. What do you have to lose? God sees it all. As you admit it, you taste freedom. And Holy Spirit power to throw away as worthless, rubbish, garbage, any substitute for God, an idol, because it's worthless. We need to pray above all else for that kind of revival to impact Grace Redeemer Church. And only after it has changed us inside the church should we be praying, Lord, now use us to radically change the world. Let's pray revival prayers as a church. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. Give us an overabundant taste. Flood us with spirit power. And Lord, we don't ask for that to, to put on a sign, uh, to, to a show of signs and wonders. Um, we, we don't ask that to be miracle workers. We ask that so that we could see Jesus more clearly, our own sinful hearts more fully, that we would be um, radical repenters, and that we would cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what your spirit does. We pray for more of him and his power. That revival, real genuine revival, might take place inside Grace Redeemer Church. And then only after you've dealt with us as we need to be dealt with, as we need to be righted and reoriented and recalibrated, Lord, use us to change the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.